0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS or the Heavyweight Tungsten Super Shot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes. So if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot, visit federalpremium.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs. Tons of great content.
1: On today's episode, I'm talking with Andy May about archery. He's a guy who takes great pride and enjoyment in really taking his accuracy to the next level with a huge focus on bow hunting effectiveness. He also has a great system for documenting all of his testing and his hard work at the range to show when something is actually making an improvement versus, you know, just a gut feeling or a single good or bad day at the range to try and make his decisions. I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like Andy's the type of guy who can really get into the weeds on a whole variety of topics archery related, but he also really understands the practical significance. We talk about his arrow building process, bow tuning, equipment in general, really but then also dive into more archer specific topics like shot activation, from both a physical and a mental standpoint, pulling through versus trigger punching and when, if at all, it makes sense to deviate. We talk about dealing with wind, understanding how confidence going into the field can be a great advantage, while overconfidence can lead to issues. There's really a lot of good bits of information in here and definitely some things that I learned that I can apply to my own shooting and practice. Real quick, before we dive in, make sure to check out the OnX Hunt app if you haven't already. I've partnered up with Onyx this year to provide you guys a discount code to get some additional savings off of the price. It's my go-to service for not only e-scouting from a distance, you know, sitting on my computer at home, but also when navigating and marking waypoints out in the field. Use the code DIY for that discount. And with that, let's jump into the podcast with Andy. All right, on the podcast today, I have Andy May. Some of you may already know who Andy is. He's been on uh, Wired to Hunt with Mark Kenyon a couple times. Um, I met him in person for the first time at ATA this year, hanging out at the the tethered booth. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, Andy, in case they don't know who you are already. Okay. Uh, thanks for having
2: me, Garrett. Um, so yeah, uh, most of you have probably heard me on uh, Wired to Hunt podcast, but kind of regular guy. I'd say I'm pretty hardcore bow hunter. Got started hunting a little bit later in life, uh, right around 18 and actually started on the archery side and then that kind of uh you know forced me into the direction of of bow hunting it was just kind of a natural transition there but I don't know I've been bow hunting probably close to 22 years I think 22 23 years something like that the majority of my hunting is in Michigan where where I'm from southern Michigan but um I do a lot of traveling out of state so I've hunted you know as far west as Colorado and as far east as Maryland and a lot of the states in between. So um, quite a bit of experience in different states and different types of habitat and different areas. But as much as I love bow hunting, I love archery. And um, I want to preface this podcast. uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert. You know, all the competitive stuff that I used to do was all local. And that was a while ago. Um, And I don't really do any of that anymore. Although I do prepare as if I'm going into some sort of archery competition and that's just stems from my love of archery and then also just wanting to be a better bow hunter. And I know you Garrett, you kind of geek out about this stuff. So I think today will be a fun conversation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. I didn't even realize that you had started archery first before you got into bow hunting. That was, that's, uh, that's new to me. Um, yeah. Cause I would say most people who are, you know, aware of you probably know you more for uh, the bow hunting, but I mean, you're, you know, from what I know, you're every bit as serious about the archery aspect as you are uh, on the hunting side of things. And I was actually going to ask you too, if you had done any competition, but it it probably seems like, you know, if you wanted to take the competition to the next level, it might detract from the hunting side of things a little bit and just, you know, time commitments and and everything else to, to kind of take it to the next step. Would you probably agree with that?
2: Yes, exactly. So, um,
1: yeah, I I did some local stuff.
2: Most of it was 10, 12 years ago. Um, You know, little local 3D shoots and some up, you know, spot type uh, leagues and whatnot up the local archery range. But, you know, I never strived to be like a, you know, a high level competitive archer. I was very competitive when I did those things. I, I, you know, I worked really hard at it and I did very well. But even though I loved archery right from the get-go, I mean, I kind of fell in love with that. Everything now, uh, as far as archery, revolves back to hunting. So everything I do, I believe, makes me a more effective bow hunter. Whether, you know, some of this stuff that we dive into might seem a little over the top or uh, maybe not necessary. But for me personally, I do it partially because I love it, and it's a lot of the things I can do during the downtime, like maybe when I'm not able to get boots on the ground, in the woods, I still have this like urge to work at improving my bow hunting. And this is something I can do at home. A lot of it. Um, so a lot of it comes from that just wanting to, to get better and, and be more effective and more efficient. But I do, I do enjoy it too. It's uh, you know, a lot of times given the facts, like, or given the opportunity to, to you know, go play around a golf or something, or shoot in my backyard and work on some of this stuff. I would, I would choose this like 99 times out of 100. So, it gives me a lot of confidence going into the hunting season.
1: Oh yeah, for for sure. You know, I was shooting a 3D course yesterday with Ernie, and uh-huh. it was you know just driving rain, blustery, uh, high stem count with targets just kind of tucked in everywhere. Just a, a challenging course, and and Ernie had made some kind of a comment about how. uh how you had showed him up on a Marco Polo shooting at 100 yards, um, <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I was yeah. going to get Andy on the the cast talk archery," and and now that just like pushed me over the edge. It's like, "Oh, we got to make this happen." Um, what shot opportunities would you be prepared to take, and what do you practice for um, in your normal regimen? If you were to go out west or something where you you know could take a longer shot, I mean, what do you strive for?
2: Well, you know, I don't I don't think that I ever strive to like make a long shot that's not my goal isn't to make the longest shot i can you know obviously you know i think any bow hunter would would prefer to be closer um i guess like when i practice i i do practice out to you know pretty extreme long ranges and i i do a lot of tinkering and testing to try to give myself the most accurate and forgiving setup and by doing so i'm able to to kind of you know, I guess build a setup that I'm just really, really confident in. And you know, when I go out west, um, I, I I don't know that I have a number in my mind. Um, I've I've taken some longer shots. You know, I, I I took an antelope that was you know really far um, a few years ago, and then uh, a couple of mule deer that were in that you know 65 uh, to 70 range. But those were both all, or all those were under really you know really ideal conditions um the one of the the mule deer the one that was at 60 um had a pretty strong crosswind but i was so low um in the canyon that it it really wasn't affecting my hold or it did push the arrow a, a few inches but uh you know nothing super dramatic but what i find is like my confidence just my confidence does get really high and i feel like you know anything within a hundred yards of me is pretty much toast. But in reality, uh, that's not, that's not the case. I mean, in, in hunting conditions, I mean, you're dealing with all kinds of things. You're, you're dealing with animals that, you know, most of the time aren't perfectly calm, you know, a lot of, at least a lot of the time. And then, you know, you got the outside elements, you know, you got, um, you know, the wind and, you know, that animal that, that might be kind of feeding along and, you, he could move. So there's different things that you got to factor in there, but you know, when the situation is right and the conditions are right and I'm feeling confident and I've been, uh, you know, practicing the way I should, I feel pretty confident with a, any shot that's presented. If, if like, if everything is right, but those circumstances don't happen too often from, you know, from what I can tell, like out West, that that first shot I took at that antelope, it was pretty far. Um, but it was it was dead comb. I mean, it was like I was shooting at a 3D target. He was standing there facing the other way, just had no idea. And I shot and the arrow flew through and it just hit literally right behind my pin. Fast forward a year later, I went out antelope hunting again, you know, thinking that, hey man, I got this. This is pretty this stuff's pretty easy. Well, it was a much different scenario there was there was high winds gusty 25 to you know 35 mile an hour winds all week and man i uh i took a shot at 70 yards on this antelope it was the closest i could get to them it was spot and stalk type situation and um it was it was just howling wind and i was trying to hold trying to hold and i just ran my shot execution i don't mind a little pin movement there it doesn't really bother me too much and i can still be accurate with a little bit of pin movement but man I shot that and right when I shot it was one of those times where like you get a little gust and it kind of blows your bow a little bit you know off target or or you know off the the aiming mark and then my arrow just sailed and I missed that I missed that thing by you know a good 12 inches like in front of his body so I was like right then and there I was like man this is just this is really case dependent and in this, this type of hunt where I'm dealing with right now, like, I need to get in close. Like, I want to be 40 and in, which is a really tough thing to do with an antelope spot and stalk. But um, that's just the, the hunt that was in front of me. And, you know, I couldn't take, you know, a longer shot and be ethical. Um, and I'm glad I didn't hit that animal. It was a, a learning experience for me. And I kind of knew it. Uh, but what I think I was a little overconfident because, you know, all summer long I was – You know shoot laser beams and you know you think you can go out there and do that but in a real hunting scenario you know it doesn't always present like it does in the
1: backyard when you're in flip-flops you know (laughs) (laughs) right No, those are good points and you're you're diving into some things on like the wind and stuff that i really want to to pick your brain on and you know as we kind of get into those things let's take a step back and just talk about your overall kind of setup process you, know, you, mm-hmm. you got bows you got arrows right do you start with setting up your bow first and you want to have your bow to spec ready to go or do you kind of look at it from the arrow perspective first and then you know figure out the bow part of it later uh, what do you like to set up first
2: well uh, i set my bow up first and then you know i got a i got a pretty good idea especially now you know kind of what what i'm going to run with but I'll 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 test some new setups that you know are a little different but um, I start with my bow and I get that all, you know, all into spec and all, uh, timed and everything. And then I'll put, I'll, I'll start with, a with an arrow that I know is, is close, uh, that that's, that's close to being uh, spec wise that should work through that setup. And right now I've been running the same arrow setup for the last three or four years. Uh, sort of like I've tinkered with some fletching and stuff and we can get into that, but, um, But for the most part, um, this arrow build was a result of a lot, testing a lot of different, um, like point weights and and different shafts. I, I bought, I bought several different types of setups that all theoretically, um, you know, spine wise and point weight wise should work through, through my setup. And, uh, I just, I just shot them all. I shot them all, um, a lot and I shot them all at distance and, I like to, I like to just kind of track um, my groups. Like I'll I'll record my groups and and over time when I do that a lot, um, you know, there's there's little patterns that kind of show up. Like this this setup had a much you know tighter group overall, like on average than this setup, and and that's kind of how I narrow down um, my setup. So, but as far as like uh, specific arrow, like I go into pretty pretty deep detail when i'm building my arrow meaning like i'll get my shafts um uncut and then i'll cut them to length um from both ends you know and try to get the straightest part of the arrow even though i do get the, str- the straightest arrow that they they make um and then i'll you know install my components but when i'm doing that i'm, I'm weighing everything along the way just to kind of make sure everything kind of ends up being exactly the same weight so if i got a shaft that's you know a grain higher I might pair that with an insert that's a grain lower than the rest um, I've found some shafts now where the components are very very consistent the tolerances are great um, but it wasn't always like that in the past I've had a dozen shafts that have varied as much as uh, 10 grains um, with the inserts installed like when I just bought them from the archery shop to mm-hmm. say hey I need a dozen of these and they they kind of build them right there and then I'd go home and I'd start weighing these and I was like holy crap you know like this one's 450 and this one's 459 and this one's 460 and it was just like wow you know what I mean like it even if it wouldn't make that much of a difference say 40 yards and in to me like to my mental state it drove me nuts so that's when I started you know every year it seemed I started getting more and more into the kind of DIY right from scratch build and, um, try to get everything, you know, as exact and close to weight, um, as I can. And that just gives me that, like I said, going back to that mental confidence that now I got, I got these shafts or these arrows that are, that are built perfectly. So I can no longer blame any of my mistakes on, inconsistencies in my arrow. Um, you know, it's all going to be, it's going to all fall down, fall back on like my skill and my execution, but going back, I'll, you know, what I did was I experimented with point weight a little bit. I, I tend to use a a somewhat moderately heavy insert. Um, I don't worry about like FOC too much, but I try to get, you know, a little higher. Like I use a 55 grain, uh, stainless steel insert. And then I would, play with point weight you know 100 125 i would even use some 145s and then i even would go down to uh, 85s just to see how that how that arrow would react in group downrange. um and i ended up coming into this arrow setup that performed best for me and it was just through all trial and error and the funny thing was um i don't know if you're probably familiar with that program i think it's called on target yep so I have some friends that have that, and and uh, after I did this whole process of finding this arrow that was, you know, performed the best for me downrange, you know, I had I had some friends run some numbers out of my setup, and it it came out exactly with what I had, even though I took kind of like the longer,
1: yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah.
2: roundabout way to get there. It it actually it actually did prove to be, you know, according to at least that program, the most the potentially the most accurate setup. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So,
1: I, I have on target and I also have the app that's called like Q spine or something. And, and of course mm-hmm. there's the charts and everything, but I imagine you probably just use the charts as a starting point to get close.
2: I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used the charts and then I would, um, you know, I would kind of go from there. Like if I was going to use a heavier insert, I might go, um, you know, up a, a level, you know, as far as spine stiffness, stiffness, and, uh, I played with that. I bought some, you know, ha- you know, handful of different shafts of different spines and different inserts and stuff. And I was just, I just played with them and, um, kind of zeroed in on with what I have now, but I'm also continuing to explore further, you know, in different setups as well, because there's always room to improve. And I, I actually have two bows. So I kind of, uh, I'm running two different types of setups that we can, you know, we can dive into that later. So I'm trying to find something similar that performs, well, out of this other setup, but it's going to be a much heavier, kind of harder hitting setup. But um, as far as like also building that arrow and like going through the tuning process, like I start with bare shafts and I start, um, you know, at paper and I bare shaft every shaft through paper and I'll knock tune until I get that exact same perfect bullet hole through paper. And I'll do it at first at five feet and then I'll go back to about fifteen. And if I can't get one to, to shoot a perfect bullet hole bare shaft, like I just mark it as a practice arrow, And I know that that, you know, even if it's just got a little bit of a tear, I, I know those fletchings will correct it and it will still shoot fine. But like, like I said, for me, like I'm looking for like perfection in this build. And if there's one that I know that isn't as good as the other or won't perform and I can't get it to, uh, to shoot straight, you know, knock tuning it or even putting a new knock in and trying it again. I'll just put it as a practice arrow because those are the, those are the arrows that I'll use for like blind bailing, which I do a ton of like just close range shot execution. I'm not worried about accuracy. I beat that arrow to death. I mean, I shoot it hundreds and hundreds of times. And so that would be an arrow that I would designate towards that type of practice, just like a close range shot execution practice. But you know, what I'm finding is these arrows like that I'm kind of zeroing in on, man, they're all good. You know, I, I might find one out of a dozen that that doesn't spin right or that I can't get to shoot a, a bullet hole through paper. But I've, I've kind of zeroed on, on these companies that I, I don't know, they just, the tolerances are really good. They're just really quality shafts. I'm sure there's plenty of other ones out there. I have not tried them all, um, but they're much better than the ones, the several brands that I've used before. So that's kind of where I'm at with You know, as far as, like, that's how I go about the the arrow build and and how I, I guess, go down that path to trying to get the most forgiving setup.
1: Yeah, that sounds actually almost identical to the way that I do it, too. Um, The the paper really helps, I think, because sometimes if you just shoot bare shafts at, like, 20 yards, you might see a little kick, but it it flies so fast, it's, like, it's hard to tell exactly what happened unless you slow it down with, like, slow motion camera. But you get that Mm -hmm. paper, that paper is just really easy to see what's going on. Um, yeah, and I like something else that you, you said you did with just adjusting the point weight to try and find that dynamic match versus, mm-hmm. you know, the first time I had kind of heard about something like that was, uh, from John Dudley talking about the mm-hmm. horizontal impact line and, yes. you know, he's adjusting the, the poundage on his bow. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I, I bought a 70 pound bow, I want to shoot it at 70 pounds. I don't want to leave energy on the table, you know? So I, right. I think that makes a lot of sense. Just adjust your point weight. Also, yeah when you when you mentioned that sometimes you might get like one arrow out of a dozen that just doesn't play with the rest of them. I found for the for the most part, you know, similar to you a lot of the stuff that I buy tends to be pretty consistent and some arrows might be better or worse around an individual shaft in terms of its spine. Like you might you might press it on the spine tester and get like a a 296 reading and then rotate it a quarter turn, get like a 298 and then like a 303. But then if you knock tune you're able to get something that's going to match, you know, throughout the group, but then every once in a while you might get an arrow that like the numbers are 270 or, you know, 320. And that's like the one where it just doesn't play with the rest of the group.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't messed with a, a spine tester. Like I used to years ago, you know, I tried the whole floating the uh, arrows in the bathtub and, you know, all that stuff. And I did that for maybe one or two seasons. And, um, you know, I, I kept going back to just the bear shaft from five and 15 feet. Um, that I just, you know, there there's occasionally arrows that I need to, to knock to, and, you know, I'll turn them a quarter, turn them a quarter until they hit that, that bullet hole, like the rest of them. And I, I just feel like if I can get that that arrow coming out of the bow that straight at two distances without any fletching i i I don't know that i can ask for more than that so that's kind of where i'm at now and and you know maybe i can even improve better with finding that stiff side of the spine but i feel like essentially that's what i'm doing but what i found is a lot of shafts uh, in fact the last dozen i tested it didn't matter where it was turned in the on the knock it was shooting a bullet hole um, they all shot perfect bullet holes. It was the first time that's ever happened with me out of a dozen. So I don't know. I mean, arrows, maybe they're just getting better, and maybe that maybe that stuff doesn't come into play as much as it used to like a few years ago. I don't know. But I, I think arrows are getting better, you know, every year, so that, that might be part of it.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's a little bit of both, I think. Um, and to answer your the first thing that you said, I think the way you do it is the best way all the floating of the shafts, measuring on a the spine, then marking their stiff side, all that stuff, I think is just kind of intended to approximate what you would get as a reaction out of the bow. But if you just shoot it out of the bow, you're going to get the best result better than what those other things that would approximate are going to tell you. So why not just jump right to that? I can see how from like an arrow manufacturer standpoint, they might want to try and find a method to mark it So it's less work for the consumer, but it's like, if you're just going to shoot mm-hmm. it, I don't see how you can get any better than that unless you do it out of like a shooting machine.
2: Right, yeah, and that's just my setup now. I mean, that's the way I, I start. I don't fletch anything until I get them all shooting that way. So, again, to me, it, or to the guy listening to this, he might be like, man, that is just too much, that's overkill. But for me, it's it's fun. I actually enjoy that. Like I enjoy that, like some guys, like like I said, enjoy going play a round of golf. Like, that's, that's the round of golf for me. I like that. So it's just part of the process and, you know, just kind of gets my head into the, the space of where I'm, I guess I'm always wanting it to be. And that's just kind of striving for perfection or, or to get better. So that's just kind of where it all starts right
1: there. So I'm assuming you would do that knock indexing before. I mean, obviously you do that before you flat your arrows and before you play around with point weights to get your you know perfect setup.
2: Yeah. So right now, like now I have, you know, a pretty good idea of like, what my setup like so you know i'm not changing my point weight too much anymore but yeah i would knock tune and then when i would get that perfect bullet hole i'll just put a little you know silver sharpie at the top and then that gives me a reference so i can fletch all my arrows you know according to that reference so all my fletching sit on the shaft the same exact way that's what i would do and then yes um in the past i would go from there and then i would mess with the you know the 85 the 100 the 125 and the 145 green heads and then i would shoot them my and my, for me my uh i have you know for whatever reason this is just kind of what i do but i have three distances that i kind of monitor my my grouping and one is 40 60 and 80 and i know what i can shoot like i have um you know data going back several years of tons of different bows and tons of different setups. So I know what I can do at my best. And, um, so those are the numbers that I'm kind of always striving to, you know, end up at at those distances. So, you know, when I'm trying a new setup, like if I can't ever get to those numbers, I just, I go, I I scrap it or, or I try to tweak something to try to get it to that, that next level. But I know what I can do with a, a setup that is shooting really, really well and really forgiving. So that's kind of like my baseline. If I can't get there or really, really close to it, I won't stick with it. I'll tinker and I'll tweak things or, you know, maybe give up on it altogether.
1: And, for choosing your fletching configuration, are you, and I know you've, you've tested this in the past and probably will continue to test it maybe on some of the new arrow setups that you're playing around with. Do you always, as a rule now, match the, the direction of your natural spin? Um, is that just kind of a, you know, like a mental seems like it should be right type of thing? Um, or are you going to test both the directions again? So a few years ago, um, when I, I,
2: I was able to get my hands on a, a a really high quality camera where I could do some slow motion testing. I had it set up on this uh, like platform that was directly behind me and right over top of me. So it was like, you know, like someone like looking right over top of me so I could really see that arrow shaft take off. And I had it set up so I could do this. I was just doing this like every day, you know, in the evening and shooting and then I would you know, watch the videos back and slow them down. And what I was finding was like, you know, all was, all was pretty good in perfectly calm conditions. And then when I would get any type of breeze left to right or right to left, I was getting pretty dramatic kick out, you know, on the tail end of the arrow, which does happen in a crosswind. A lot of people don't know that, but I mean, when those fletchings catch wind, they kick out with the wind. And then obviously the fletching kind of self-corrects and then, you know, your arrow kind of squiggles down there and then straightens out. But what I was finding was like, it was really weird. My arrow was starting off straight and then like 10 yards down range, it was kicking out. And then it was self-correcting like almost when it was hitting the target at 40. Like, yeah, I mean, pro- it was probably self-correcting at like 30. And, um, I was just like, man, that is like, you know, 10, it seemed like 10 to 15 yards was the worst when I would have thought, you know, maybe like five yards would be the worst, it would start correcting by 10. But I mean, it was like the worst, like, you know, right where you'd almost want a a whitetail, you know, it's right, right at that range. And I just, I just kept it was driving me nuts. And I was like, man, that is just going to eat up my penetration. Why is it doing that? So I started, I mean, I was, (laughs) I've mentioned this before, but I, I don't hesitate to reach out to like guys that know more than me about archery. And I talked to Jesse Broadwater and I talked to Brad Perkins and I talked to Dan McCarthy and Tim Gillingham. And two of those guys said, what way do you have your arrows fletched? And I said to the right. And they said, I bet your natural, your natural rotation of your shaft is to the left. And what you're seeing is a knuckleball effect. Like your arrow is coming out of the bow and then downrange at, you know, seven, 10, 15 yards. That's when the rotation stops and it's really kicking. And then, then it's self-correcting. So it's, it's, uh, it's coming out to the left, then starts rotating back to the right. And that's where I was getting that real wide kick. And I was like, huh? I was like, well, it makes sense. So they said, try fletching this. So I did, I tried fletching left, did the same thing, went through the same process of recording everything. And what I saw was i got the same type of of kick out in a crosswind but it was less and it was much closer to the camera much closer to the bow so i was getting that kick out which was the wind you know pushing the back end of the arrow wasn't near as dramatic i had some angles on my arrow the what the other setup it was like it was like downrange it was like 45 degrees i mean it was crazy i mean the point was pointing way to the right and the tail is pointing way to the left, like a 45 degree arrow. And I'm like, Holy smokes. So I knew that that wasn't, you know, something had to be off there or something could be improved on. So what I did was I fleshed it to the left and I actually fleshed it with a little more helical to get that kind of driving spin out of the get go. Cause I was actually running a, a very weak offset, um, a very like a one degree offset, no helical at all, just straight clamp, Yep. One degree offset. And the reason I did that was because I was getting a really good groups at 100 yards with that setup in calm conditions because I wasn't getting a lot, you know, if you got a really, really big helical, you'll get really good groups, you know, up to 40, 50. But then when you try those really long shots, it's, it, the, it's slowing the arrow down so much. And you you will get you've heard these guys talk about you get like this parachute effect. I was getting that big time when I used to run a big, big heavy helical. Um, so I was getting these really, really accurate groups at 100 yards with that one degree offset. But I really wasn't paying attention to what was happening to, you know b- before that, especially like in a crosswind. when I was shooting at 100 yards, it was always it was perfectly calm and you know what I mean. So I wasn't I wasn't dealing with that. But once I started using the slow motion video, I could really see. So when I switched it to that left helical, And I did a a mild heel, like a two degree, like I said, I noticed uh, the arrow kicked and self-corrected before I was getting that kick with the right offset fletching. So it was, it was still kicking out, not nearly as severe and it was sucking back in like much quicker. So I was getting a much quicker inline, perfectly flying arrow shaft sooner out of the bow. So it was self-correcting much sooner. And then, you know, now I got this arrow that's flying in line into the target. So I'm going to maximize accuracy and macu- uh, maximize penetration. So I would have never figured that out if I didn't ask those guys that are more knowledgeable, knowledgeable to me or, or uh, videoed it. In fact, Tim Gillingham was so interested in helping me, he had me send them all the videos. So we were going back and forth and he just helped me a lot with that. And that, that made a big difference. So then. Going from there, I started experimenting with a, a four-fletch left helical um, as opposed to my three. And I just I noticed more improvements. I've I've noticed better accuracy downrange, even less arrow kick, which I was kind of surprised because you would think, you know, four fletch has a little more surface area. But for whatever reason, I was getting less kick, you know, less less of that tail off to the side in a crosswind. And then the downrange accuracy, I mean, I must've shot 80 to a hundred groups and, and measured each group. And it was, it was clean and clear that the four fletch outperformed the three fletch for me. And that was with a field point. So, you know, I didn't know what it would do with broadheads, but it seemed to translate right over to broadheads too. It was, it was you know, if I shot 10 groups, seven out of the 10 would be tighter with the four
1: fletch. And that's with the same exact vein, just one, Yeah, had three of them on one, you had four.
2: Um, so, yeah, so what I did, um, the first vein, when I had that right that right uh, fletching with, a like, a one-degree offset, those were the Fusion 2.1s. Love those veins. They're great veins. So then I switched to – I switch used those same veins and switched to the left, still in a three-fletch fl- configuration, and yep. I noticed the, um, the improvement. Once I kind of settled in on a, um, a left helical for my fletching – configuration then i started testing out new fletching so i was i was in this big kick like a few years ago and i still i still to this day try different ones but um so i went from the fusion 2.1 i used to shoot the two inch and then i went to the two that are a little bit lower profile i was trying to get again I'm trying to get less wind drift and then i went to their 1.75 or tiny and those are the ones i did in a four fletch but they didn't do as well. They didn't do as well in a four-fletch. My groupings were kind of, I don't know, they just weren't, they weren't up to par and for whatever reason, but those are the tiniest fletchings to this day that I've ever used. They were just, they were just too small. It was almost like throwing a bear shaft down there. Mm-hmm. So then I went back to the fusion 2.1s and did those in a four-fletch and they, those are flying really, really good. And then the next year, um, I, I picked up two different, um, fletchings i can't remember what the one was but the other ones were the boning heat veins which i've talked to you about and i did those i just fletched those in a four fletch um left helical and then those clean and clear outperformed my fusion 2.1s were a little longer they were a little longer and about the same uh low profile but you know it's not like i shoot five groups and and you know whatever i whatever one wins that's what i go with like I'll shoot these for a month and I'll shoot these, you know, like I said, 40, 60, 80, and I'm writing down every single group. And then at the end, like old school, like paper, pencil, (laughs) I'm just like, I'm adding them all up and dividing by the number of groups and I see this average. Well, whether that's the, the best way to do it, you know, that's probably debatable, but that's just the way I've, I've done it. And it just, like I said, it just gives me so much confidence when I keep making these little tiny improvements in my setup. So that's where I'm at right now with the the boning heat veins, man. They are, they're quiet. I love that. They're the quietest vein I've shot. Those, those fusions though, though are pretty quiet too. They're very, very quiet. Um, They're low profile. They don't have a lot of drift. They're grouping extremely well and they steer my broadheads well fixed and mechanical blades. So right now they're doing everything that I want them to do. So this year, I picked up some uh, of the Max 23. Those are like those really low-profile veins that Dudley uses with his mechanicals. Mm-hmm. Then I picked I picked up some TAC veins, the Matrix version. And then I also got some, uh, some of the Day 6 uh, fletching. And so far, what I found, the TAC veins, the Matrix version, a little loud. They're a little loud for my taste. Didn't group as well as my Boning Heat veins to be fair i didn't shoot like 60 or 80 groups with them i shot probably 20 but they were noticeably louder so i just kind of i just decided not to go with those now the max 23 are much lower profile even than my heat vanes. and they're great as far as like reduced wind drift they're really really quiet but so far from what i can tell I'm just not getting the long range consistency, um, you know, at those longer distance, you know, 80, hundred, I'm not getting the grouping like I do with my heat vanes. So for me so far, the day six ones, I'm really liking. They're a little, they're much softer. Um, they seem to be really quiet. I have not shot those yet at long distance. I actually have those on a different arrow setup right now, but, um, I'll be testing those because so far I really like those. But as of right now, those boning heat vanes are just, man,
1: they are just money. And I've turned a
2: few people onto
1: those and they just love them. And they're, so they're really inexpensive compared to some of the other options I was investigating. Um, yeah. you know, I told you those, those silent night veins, there's, you know, the big marketing claim is they're half the noise of other vanes, different manufacturing process and whatnot. They're like, it's almost like a dollar a vein. Whereas the boning heat vanes, you can get like a hundred pack for like 20 bucks. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And maybe those are quieter. I mean, I don't know, but, uh, I did some noise testing, uh, it was two years ago, like with a decibel meter and I put it, I, (laughs) whether this is scientific enough or not, that's again, debatable, but I put it on like a sawhorse, like right under where my arrow would travel. So I was shooting at like 60 and then I had the sawhorse at like 30 and I just had the decibel meter right there and I was shooting over it, like literally over it, almost hitting it. And, uh, that might be a little overkill, but just some of the videos I've seen, some hunting videos of that, that slow motion, I'm I'm fairly certain that some of the reactions we see from from animals are from noisy fletching. And and some of the noisiest ones out there are the most popular, and those are the blazers. Those things are noisy as heck. I I don't like them. But there you could definitely just have a buddy stand off to the side downrange a little bit, like in a, at a safe angle and just have him listen, you know, and shoot a few. When I did that with my buddy, Tom, um, with those tack veins, he's like, man, he goes, what are those second ones you shot? Those are loud. <laughs> so, so even he just not even knowing that, um, you know, which ones were which, like he could tell the difference very clearly. He's, he said that third, he goes, whatever that third one, he goes the third one and the second one, I can't remember which one it was. I think the tack vein was was first and he goes, Whatever that second and third ones, he goes, Those were very close. And that was the heat vanes and those max twenty threes.
1: There's a video on YouTube Kyle Davidson put up. He has the DCA Custom Arrows company and he shot at hundred yards of like I think seven or eight different vein configurations and had the camera set up at like fifty that he was shooting over. And uh-huh. it was it was pretty eye opening. Like the differences between the quietest ones that he shot was like the max stealth and the um, the TAC driver, which is their lower profile, longer one. Um, yeah. And then uh, compared to some of the higher profile ones, significant difference in how much hiss, especially when you're, when you're going like right over and past the camera. It seems like sometimes if you were to like pause the video right as it was about to go over the camera, it'd be much harder to tell the difference. But after the mm-hmm. arrow passes over, you get that huge like Doppler effect noise and it really mm-hmm. exaggerates the noise. So I don't know always how much of a difference it makes, you know, if the noise up to that point, like as it's coming is similar, but I'm sure it makes some kind of a difference uh, that those animals can pick up on.
2: Yeah. I mean, you'd think so, especially at those longer distances. And I, you know, a lot of guys are 25 and in guys. I mean, at that distance, I don't know that it makes that big a difference. You know what I mean? It, right. it probably doesn't, but you know, I've started going out West and you know if if you think you're going to get a, a spot and stalk opportunity and an antelope at 25 yards i mean that is hard i mean there's there's not too many situations where where you can even remotely get that close because of the where they live um you know in that that flat type you know sage country it's really difficult the closest one i shot was a doe um and that was 35 yards and she was like in the perfect spot for me to do that like, like all the other ones that I've shot, like, there's just, there's just no way. So you, if you're going to go out there and you want a reasonable chance at success, you can, if you prepare and you get a setup that, you know, you're, you're comfortable and confident with. But I think at those, those longer distances is where these little things come into play. Now, how much, you know, who knows? I don't know. But like, even if it, even if it's a 1% advantage for me, like, I'll take that. You know, to me, that's time well spent. You know what I mean? Because, like, I try to get an inch here or, a, you know, a percentage there and a percentage here and a percentage there. And it's like, if you try to do that everywhere, it, it adds up. So, I don't know. For me, it again, like, I think it makes a difference. And even if nothing else, just for that confidence level, I go in feeling like I'm super stealthy and, and super accurate with my, with my setup. So, just that part of the equation is, like, taken care of.
1: Yeah. I've noticed – a couple things. Um, also, just kind of on that same that same line of of uh, talk, vetted broadheads significantly louder, both yeah. from the shooter's perspective and from the target perspective than the solid version of broadheads. Um, some of the mechanicals I've shot have been pretty quiet. You know, comparable to um, the solid broadheads. Arrow weight. I don't even have to put a camera up. I can just tell by shooting the bow that if I shoot like a 500 grain versus like a 650 it's a noticeable drop in, in overall noise. And obviously mm-hmm. there's other trade-offs that come along with that. But I kind of feel like if you're if people, you know, debate, like, is it the bow noise that they react to or the arrow noise? I kind of feel like if they're close, you know, like within 25 or 30, or whatever, it's probably maybe a combination of both, but, but maybe the bow more so.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if they're longer, I mean, the sound of the bow that far away is such a, especially if it's like early season, you got like bug noise, a little bit of wind rustling the grass. Like the bow noise just doesn't seem that significant. It seems like they have to be reacting to the arrow at longer shots. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that
2: antelope um, that I took, the, the one that was a little further when I shot that thing, he was facing the other way. And um, when that bow went off, it was it was a strangest thing because I had shot so many times at that distance, you know. And you get used to like, you know, you shoot, and then you know, a second or two later, you hear the arrow hit for whatever reason. It was like super slow motion. I shot, and I thought I missed this thing. I'm like, where? What in the world is going on? And then all of a sudden, I just hear, Boom, and I hit it. I see it hit right behind the shoulder, but it was like it was a super slow motion. But that was pretty funny. But anyway, as soon as that bow went off. I'm, you know, I'm following through and I'm kind of looking at the spot and I see him turn his head and look at me. So he heard that bow, but he's so far away. It just didn't matter. It was just like a, it was just a noise. Like what's that over there? It wasn't yeah. startling. It wasn't like a, like a, a jolting noise. Like it is when you're, you know, when he's at standing at 20 and it's perfectly calm like that, especially like when you're under in a canopy and stuff that it like it compounds and like almost echoes. It's very startling to them. So they, yeah, they flinch and they drop. So yeah, I think you're right. At those longer distances, I think it has more to do with, with the noise of your setup coming through, and uh, like you said, a mechanical, a low profile fletching, a heavy arrow. Those are all things that are going to be help you out in that type of situation. But there's trade offs, so you got to kind of find what suits your style best. Like some guys are, you know, right now the rage is real heavy, um, you know, real heavy arrows, bone crushing arrows, and you know, I absolutely see the benefits of that, and you know, the Ranch ferry and all his videos, and people are are jumping on that, and and I think that's a good thing. I really do. Um, I'd rather see guys go there than than too light. Um, but for me personally, I'm building a setup like that more more so for like elk. But I do a fair bit of ground hunting for whitetail, and I really like a a heavy hitting uh, setup for that. But everything else. I'm more of a shot placement, pinpoint accuracy-minded hunter, I guess. So I'm, I'm thinking, what setup can I find that will give me the flattest trajectory, the quietest flight, the most accurate grouping, the most forgiving setup if my form isn't 100% on this shot? And that's what I tend to gravitate towards. You know, and, and maybe it's just – it's it, it might be just that I just hold – some of those things a little higher. I value them a little more than say the guy that wants the arrow, that's going to punch through that shoulder. You know, if that deer moves, like, I don't, I don't think about that. The way I'm thinking about it is I want that arrow to hit right behind my pin. Yeah. You know, so uh, I'm not saying I'm right. I could argue against myself and say, this is the better way to go. Um, you know, especially if you're going to, you're going to be 40 yards and in, I would say go with that, but that's not me. You know what I mean? That might be me on a a particular day or a particular hunt, but I like to be able to take an animal further if I'm confident in it, if the situation is correct. And that, I mean, that's me saying like last year I passed some deer that were, you know, in the mid forties yardages that I passed last year because it was just too gusty and too windy. And I just didn't feel confident in the shot, you know, on a calm day, that's, that's a, a for sure dead deer to me. So, you know, you, you get to a point, I guess, where you, you you need to be responsible enough to make those choices. You know, a younger Andy, well, I know, and, and not, not because I didn't care what happened to the animal, but maybe I was just overconfident and thought I could just overcome the elements, would have maybe t- taken that shot. And then you get, you know, you get one that's high in the back or something with crappy penetration because you're getting such a strong crosswind. So, you know, I guess you get to, hopefully, you know, everybody gets to a point where they can kind of make those decisions given the circumstances and not just lose your cool just because there's a big, you know, a big deer out there at 40 yards and you've been shooting at 50 all summer and you think you should be able to make it. But if there's a 20 mile an hour crosswind, it's not just affecting your arrow, it's affecting your bow. Like I recently moved. So at my new house, I got nothing but farm fields all around me and I sit up high, kind of like. Kind of, it's not. I wouldn't call it a hill, but it's it's higher than the rest of the area. It's freaking so windy every day. It drives me nuts because I can never shoot in anything calm anymore. But man, I am just eating the wind constantly. And when the wind's blowing like that, crosswind, man, forty yards is a tough shot. You know, when it's dead calm, forty yards. You know, I'm slapping arrows. So it's it's a big difference. It will blow me off target at forty yards. You know, you, you get that those big gusts. So you you really got to pay attention to that in the situation and adjust accordingly at least that's my opinion
1: yeah that's no you bring up a really good point I was going to ask you about that specifically because I mean even yesterday when we were shooting that 3d course it was you know pretty blustery and I specifically remember uh there was a, a mountain goat target out at 60 yards and I'm trying to hold you know on the vitals and and pull through my shot and my my sight is literally my pin float is off the it's like (laughs) in front of the head and then it's like on the butt and then it's like in the ground i'm like how can i pull through and like you know it's like yeah i can look at the spot but i mean there's just as good of a likelihood as the shot breaking like six inches in front of the target as it is in the vitals Um, yeah i almost feel like in some of those scenarios like i obviously wouldn't take that shot in the field but you know if i'm shooting at a target i almost feel like those types of scenarios i'm almost more accurate just like getting the pin punching. on there for like a half a second, just punching it just to get it, you know, remotely close. Yeah.
2: And there's guys that do that. You know what I mean? There's pro pro archers that will, that will do that. They'll, they'll just punch, you know, in those types of situations. And I think there's arguments for sure that that would be more accurate in that situation. It's, you know, you get that little split second where it's kind of in the vitals and you just hammer that and the arrow goes there. And so I don't, even, I don't even know if I want to say this because I don't like the whole target panic thing with me. Like <laughs> I'm sure you've heard, like I, I dealt with that bad, but 99% of the time when I'm shooting at an animal, I am just pulling, 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 like just actively pulling through my shot to get that unanticipated release. But what I found by, because I've been doing that so long, I can activate my release a lot of different ways without, getting punchy or anticipating now i'm not saying i could do that long term like i can throw an index finger release on right now and i can go out and i can hold that pin on that target with my finger on the trigger and i'm gonna have i'm gonna have no urge to punch it at all and usually how i would uh, execute my index finger release is i would hook it around and i would just again pull 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 until the shot breaks but if i want to if a, if a deer's coming through quick or I got a, a quick opening or he, you know, I got to get it, I can absolutely hold that pin there with my finger wrapped around the trigger and then I'll just slow squeeze the trigger and that activates it much quicker. So I'm not necessarily punching it, but it goes off like right now. What would happen if I personally think maybe for me and probably for a lot of guys, if they went back to an index trigger or, or a thumb or whatever. And they started to practice that kind of more of that command style, like, okay, squeeze the trigger, squeeze the trigger. Those are some of the things that end up bringing people back to target panic. And you start getting to those bad habits of trying to time the release and you start punching the trigger. So I do not make a habit of doing that, but if the situation calls for it, I use a. have th- used the thumb button almost exclusively a couple deer. i shot on uh, the last couple of years with a index finger, but, If I need to make it go right now, like right now, I can just make a I almost essentially just make a fist. So I just kinda I just kind of squeeze my whole hand, not just my thumb. I just think of it as like I'm making a fist. And as soon as I even think about doing that, that arrow's gone. So it's it's almost like punching the trigger, except I'm not thinking now, now, now. I'm just thinking make a fist. Hmm. And it goes. So I can execute it like that and have it go a little faster, but I had no problem at all. If I need it to go a little faster to just pull through a little more aggressively. When I first started shooting like this, kind of that back tension or increasing back tension pull through, I, I used a very, very heavy trigger. And that was because I was coming off target panic really bad and I was at risk of punching the trigger. So I set it really heavy, as heavy as it would go. And I had to basically pull that bow apart to make it to go. But what that did is that taught me that execution. It ingrained that pull-through motion. When that all became natural to me, it just became habit. There was no fear of punching anymore. I had no anticipation, no worry. Then I started lighting up the tr- lightening up the trigger because what I found was when I had it that heavy is as I was building tension, my pin movement started increasing. The, the heavier I had that trigger, the harder I had to pull. My pin went for kind of from a, like a calm float to more of like an erratic dance. And I didn't like that. And I didn't like that. I had to pull, pull, pull so hard and you know, wait on that bow to go. So what I did was I slowly incrementally just lighting, lightening up the trigger a little bit and I wouldn't recommend anyone doing this. If you're trying to beat target panic, stick with that heavy trigger for a while. But then once you master that, you feel good and comfortable with it, then you can lighten it up a little bit. It's a little more favorable in a hunting scenario or even a target scenario, really. So then now I have it set light enough where, you know, as soon as I start building pressure, it's like, you know, let's just say I'm shooting, you know, in the backyard or a deer at 20 yards. It's calm. I'll put the pin and I just let the pin float. And then when I'm getting ready to shoot, I just start pull, pull, pull arrows gone about that quick. Now, if I want to make, if I need to make it go quicker than that, I have no problem pulling through a little more aggressively. And it's gone about half that, that time. So I practice and it's important for guys to do this, especially if you're using that pull through motion, you don't want to get into a habit of always executing your shot in the same type of window. Let's say your typical shot execution is four seconds. Like once you get to anchor, once you settle your pin, everything's lined up and then you start pulling. Let's just say in the backyard, you know, you get in this groove, it's like four seconds, 4.5, four seconds, 3.9, whatever. You're always in that window. Well, then you get in a situation out in the woods where your muscles are tense, the adrenaline's pumping, um, and you're you start pulling, but maybe you're not pulling as hard as you would, uh, you know, in the backyard when everything's calm. And now all of a sudden that shot's taking five, six, seven, and that can cause some guys to get rattled a little bit. Like, whoa, whoa why isn't this going off? It's just like a little mental blip. So you've gotta, you got to you you got to kind of redirect your mind to to just keep pulling, 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 and eventually it'll go. But one tip I can give, because I made this mistake of getting in that, that groove of always executing in that same small window. When you're practicing, try to execute quicker once in a while, but still use that pull through, try to get it right, settled, and then pull, 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 boom. And it goes. And then other ones go the extreme opposite. Try to imagine that you're going to pull through for 10 seconds to make that release go off. And I think, I I can't, I don't know if it was Dudley or what, it was a drill that he, he recommended. It might've been him, but man, that was so helpful to me. So then I can just let that pin settle and let it float, And I just as slow as I can build pressure, build pressure, build pressure. And I'll try to make it last as long as possible before that bow fires. And what that does is it just doesn't let your brain get in tune with a certain moment or a certain split second when that bow typically goes off. Cause that can cause a little mental blip when you're trying to execute on an animal. So now, because I'm able to do that and I've, I experienced, you know, all the ranges of that spectrum all the time. It doesn't phase me when, you know, I'm pulling on an animal and it's like, you know, my muscles are all tense and like, I'm just not, I'm pulling, but I'm clearly not pulling like I am in the backyard because I'm te- tense or stiff or adrenaline or whatever but I'm just able to sit there and be patient on that on that pin and just keep pulling and keep executing until it goes.
1: Yeah. I feel like you just opened up my brain and like looked exactly into what is going on inside my head over like the last several weeks. Cause I, yeah. I've gone through like the same, I think my thumb trigger, I have it set. It's set a little heavy right now, but I'll, I'll have that exact thing happen where if, if I'm used to it going off in like, let's say four seconds and it takes six. I'll start get I'll start getting nervous, I'll double clutch, right? Yeah. Like I I know it's just creeping in and sometimes I wonder like okay, well, uh, a lot of that's just like how much do I not put enough pre-tension on the barrel um before I start pulling? Am I am I better off, you know, setting that initial pressure and then just trying to rock the release like a a hinge um and mm-hmm. not get that additional shake that comes in by pulling too hard against the back wall, especially with the limp stops and there's no movement there? That uh that's a really good insight that I'll probably have to to put into place. It sounds like maybe the, the next best thing for me is to try that drill, uh, where you, mm-hmm. you try and get it to go off a little bit quicker and just, or, and try to get it go, to go off a little bit slower and just force myself through where I'm not having any anticipation, no matter you know what's happening. And then from that point, go ahead and start lightening that up a little bit until it's going off in a reasonable amount of time without increasing my pin float. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that going back
2: when I lightened up that trigger, Um, Like I said, when I had the heavy trigger and I was really, you know, really pulling hard, my pin started getting erratic. It was fine. I was still super accurate shooting like that, but I didn't like how erratic my pin got. So when I did lighten it, when I was comfortable doing that, now I'm pulling through and the shot is breaking while that pin is still really, really calm. Um, And you made a great point, too. Like, you know, when you're when the adrenaline's pumping and there's, you know, what you've been waiting for all season is on the line your form is not what it is in the backyard you know it's just not like you your your neck is tense your shoulders are tense your grip probably isn't relaxed you're probably not loading your thumb barrel like you did you know after shooting 50 shots in the backyard like things are off so you got to practice for you got to practice for that um and it it goes it goes back to what i talked about earlier finding a, a forgiving setup when those errors occur I want to set up that's still going to perform the best it can when those errors occur. And by doing, going through the processes that I go through, it gives me that confidence. And then by practicing those, those things like we just talked about, like, you know, making it go fast, making it go slow. It just kind of prepares your brain for the inevitable that is going to happen when you're drawing back on a big buck that, you know, things are freaking hectic, you know? I mean, once in a while you get this deer that's coming through and he's slow and he's strolling through and yeah, your your adrenaline's going, but you're able to calm yourself down with some breathing techniques and he's at fifteen yards and you just know and it's it's easy to do. But man, the majority of them for me are not like that. They're adrenaline pumping and it's like it's happening fast or whatever the anticipation is building and it's just like i know i'm not at my best i know i know i'm not gonna make a release in a shot that would look like it does in the backyard so i know there's gonna be some errors there so that's that's at least how i feel like i can prepare for that so i don't know i don't know if that makes sense but it sounds like you're kind of going through what (laughs) similar to what i went through yeah i I went through that like a couple years ago
1: and to be 100 percent honest i don't know that i've ever pulled through a shot totally on a deer that's in within 15 yards usually it just if, if i got something super close i get the full draw and it's almost like this you know kind of moment of clarity where everything just kind of settles and it just mm. sometimes i don't even remember doing it but i'll just like squeeze like when you mentioned the index figure and just kind of slowly squeezing as you're relaxed and it just goes off mm-hmm. and i feel yeah. like at the range and i'm just beating into my head over and over and over again the the actual controlled shot that Once I get into those moments, I can pull off a shot like that where you just kind of squeeze it under, you know, somewhat of control and it ends up going all right. But I can't do that at 30. I can't do that at 35, 40. I have to go through the, go through the, uh, the better process.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's some guys that do that. They'll practice like with a hinge or use back tension all summer and pretty much all practice. But then they go into that hunting scenario and they'll just punch the trigger. And they're able to do that, though, because they've worked so hard at just allowing their pin to float and they're comfortable with that. So if they go and they punch the trigger one time on an animal, they can probably do that really effectively because they still go through and they're still burying that pin on the spot and they're letting it flow. And then, yeah, they just command style kind of maybe not an all out punch, but like a more of a command style um, you know squeeze or hit the trigger so there's definitely guys that do that i don't choose to do that unless it's really necessary and i haven't found too many
1: you know scenarios in the woods where i've really needed to do that yeah it seems like the only time that feasibly it might happen is if you get like a buck chasing a doe you're following around a full draw and then he he stops and you don't know how long he's going to be there it's like okay you got to make it happen right now
0: and yeah he's, and he's but, close
1: and you know there's not going to be much of a consequence yeah. The, the, the one time I can think of when it happened was
2: when I was, you know, hunting from the ground and, you know, I got a deer like kind of coming sort of at me at ground level and he's moving and I'm at full draw, you know, that's, that's the type of scenario where it's like, you know, if you choose to stop him you might want to send it right then. But again, I can do that pretty quick by just pulling through a little more aggressively, but You know, that might be a situation there where he's, where he's close. He's going to booger out quick, or, you know, you got a deer, maybe that's a very slow walk and you don't want to stop him. There's, you know, some, maybe a a situation where it might call for that, but you know, most of the time, I'm just going to stick with my tried and true execution just because it's been, it's just been so effective for me on animals just my consistency and my my shot placement and and everything. Even just my anxiety overall is just so much lower, and the the performance is so much better and more consistent than it was
1: prior to changing to that method. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah. when you get in those kind of scenarios, you mentioned that you have you're building a a heavier hitting setup with a different bow. Mm-hmm. Are you building that intentionally with a like a higher poundage bow to try and get you know close to or maybe equivalent um, trajectory and speeds that you've gotten with your other setup?
2: Yeah. Right now I got 70 pound mods on there, but I ordered some 75 they're tuned perfectly right now with the 70. So I don't know what the 75 pound mods will do. If it, I I think it will still work, but right now I have a uh, 125 heads on there. So what if I think at the very least I might have to drop down to like a hundred grain head, which, you know, I don't know. It, you're kind of giving what here and taking away from there. So I don't know. I'll, I'll probably do what I normally do and just test both setups against each other to find what's the most accurate and what's the most forgiving. And this is the, the, the bow that I'm going to take elk hunting. Um, I probably will do some whitetail with it. Cause I think it'll be a great whitetail bow. Um, especially like in close quarters where, you know, there's close shots. And it, you know, when I'm hunting from the ground, you know, when I'm hunting from the ground, like my shots are typically on the closer end, I would say. And, uh, you know, I don't need to be reaching out there super long distances. I'm going to try to go with a heavier kind of harder hitting setup with a fixed blade and, uh, and just kind of see how
1: that does. What, what would you consider like a, a heavier setup for you? Like in the 500 grain ish range or even heavier than that lighter? Yeah. I'm,
2: I mean, I'm going to come in heavier than that for sure. I'm probably going to be in that 530 to 555 range which you know isn't I wouldn't call that super heavy but it's it's heavier than what I normally go with my hunting arrow the last three years has been 441 Um, so I would say that's more in the kind of middle to middle light you know what I mean so um, but I've had no problems you know with penetration the only the only times I ever had any issues with penetration is some of those longer shots with a big mechanical um some of those big 2-inch uh like a rage tripan which is a great make, great mechanical um but you know you get out you know 60 70 yards i haven't gotten a pass through on those although it's killed very very quickly um you know very quickly and a lot of devastation and a lot of blood so yeah i'm going to i'm going to end up probably with this other setup i'm guessing in that 530 to 550 range somewhere in there so yeah, I'm excited. I've been shooting it now. I've been testing it. Um, just my groups at 40 yards and so far so good. I mean, they're, they're shooting really, really good. Um, and I'm waiting for, you know, some calmer days to get it out to like, you know, 60 and 80, even though I'm, this, this isn't a bow where I'm you know going to take out West and potentially have longer shots, but still i'm still going to go through the process of getting that you know most accurate setup i don't want something that just hits hard that i can't hold a good group with at 40 yards
1: yeah i'd be curious to see if your sight tape is any different with that heavier setup compared to the lighter one Um, even if you're getting similar speeds out of the bow i know i had just done some like quick testing at like 30 yards shooting through a chrono and the heavier arrows would retain their speed a little bit better although they were coming Mm -hmm. out of the bow slower So that'd be something that's just interesting to see. I know that if you shoot like an absurdly heavy arrow, there's like almost, there's like just tiny percentage of velocity lost by the time you get out to really far ranges. But With Mm -hmm. those lighter arrows, you might be losing 30, 40, 50 feet per second by the time you get out to 80, 100 yards.
2: Uh, Right. Yeah, I've
1: had people tell me that, you know, at
2: some point that heavier arrow will actually catch up to the, the lighter one, you know, in trajectory out at long distances. And I, I personally haven't tested that. I know that's true with bullets, but, uh, yeah, that would be, that would be really interesting. I, I know the physics is there. I just don't know where that would actually happen. You know, if that's like a realistic hunting distance thing or
1: my guess is by the time it becomes reality, it's probably such a big discrepancy between the two setups that you wouldn't be like, those wouldn't be the two setups you'd be comparing, um, you know, like one would be way too heavy for what you're trying to do. One might be way too light. Um, yeah, you've tested two setups that are 50 grains apart from each other. It might not be that substantial of a difference.
2: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep.
1: Would you say you're more of a mechanical guy than a fixed, or is it kind of a little bit of each? Um,
2: I I actually carry both in
1: my quiver. Um, I've killed absolutely killed the majority of mine
2: with a mechanical. To me, like just going off what I've already said, I tend to go with you know my brain tends to steer me towards the most accurate and forgiving setup, like pinpoint accuracy. And that always brings me back to a mechanical, but I definitely think there are some major advantages to shooting a fixed head. Uh, Certain scenarios I think are more favorable, uh, you know, with a fixed head. And I think some scenarios are more favorable with a mechanical. Um, You know, I can get, My fixed heads to shoot right with my field points, you know, out to like fifty. Usually depends on the head, but usually right with them out to about fifty. After that, I start noticing a little more wind resistance, and they they hit a little lower, which is you know that that just happens. But man, when I get a crosswind and I have a mechanical on the head, those wings just—I'm sorry—a fixed head on the front of the arrow, those wings of those blades just just really can catch that wind and have it do some wonky things that you know a, a real tight mechanical just won't do uh, you know i could shoot as accurate as possible you know great groups with those fixed heads and then i'll shoot it out in windy condition i'm just like geez man thing looks like you know it's just it's just going all over the place you know catching that wind up front and there's you know a shuttle t or a muzzy car, it's minimal but you throw something on like a big two blade Magnus or something like that. It's much more noticeable. So, you know, I don't know when I'm hunting from the ground, I like to have a fixed head. Um, when I'm hunting on the ground, whitetails use typically closer shots. Maybe a long shot would be 40 yards. I like to have a fixed head, you know, something where I might have a, an odd angle, maybe a quartering two, a heavier, you know, a heavier setup, a, a, a good penetrating broadhead, that's kind of my go-to. But almost every other scenario, I like a mechanical. And that's not to say I like any mechanical. There's really only two or three mechanicals out there right now that I would even use. I think there's a lot of mechanicals and a lot of heads out there that will obviously kill deer. But um, there's just certain ones that, for me, have been tried and true. They seem to be extra tough. They seem to be really accurate. And... They seem to do a lot of damage and put deer down fast. And one thing you didn't, probably didn't know about me is I'm, I'm red green colorblind, so I have a really hard time following blood trails. A lot of my trips are solo. And um, I like taking solo trips. Like, it's just not always. I'll go with friends too, but I like my solo trips because it's just I'm around people all the time, and that's my time to be away from people. But man, when, when an animal takes off and uh, I don't see him go down, it's much more challenging for me to follow that blood trail than probably you. I've been on blood trails before, and I'm looking hard, and my friends will be like, "Andy, you're standing on the blood trail." you know so it's it's really hard for me to to pick it out. If it's obvious, I can find it. Um, if it's pinpoints, it's I can usually follow it, but it's really slow going. Um, even my daughter picks it up like way quicker than me. When I started using you know a few of these mechanicals. I'm getting better blood trails, which is a plus for me, and the deer are going down on average much quicker. But you know, there's some I don't know. There's some give and take with those. But like you know, I've for instance, I've shot the last five or six bucks with uh, that Rage tripan head, and I know Rage gets a bad rap. I, I don't know that I would shoot any other Rage. Their original one was junky. I don't like their no collar one, but that tripan. Has a little bit more swept back um, blade. It's got really thick blades. And it's just got that really strong, like, ferrule and, and pointy tip. That really, uh, like, good penetrating tip. I mean, every deer I've shot on that has went less than 80 yards. And I've either seen them or heard them crash. I mean, it's just just devastating. Now, that's the same head that I shot my muley in Nebraska with uh, last year. It was a 70 70-yard 70 yard shot. Perfect double lung shot didn't get an exit hole. So, I mean, right there you get, you know, some give and take. Now that deer went down a hill, up a hill and tipped over. So he ran probably 60 yards. So, you know, again, you kind of got to go with what you're most confident with. And I always tend to favor my confidence tends to favor the most accurate and forgiving setup, the one that's going to perform and give him the most, for giving accuracy, like in a, a variety of conditions, or if my human error impacts that, and and for me, it tends to be those mechanicals. And my my two favorite ones are uh, the raised Tripan and the Sever One Point Five. Not the Two Point One. I think those blades are too steep. I didn't get them. Um, I didn't get a, a pass through on an antelope with that Two Point One, and and that bothered me. The two, the One Point Five Sever is a shorter cut obviously much more swept back and I shot my Kentucky velvet Buck last year with that head at 42 yards and it zipped it zipped through him and it was like it was like another 30 yards you know past him I mean it was just just zipped right through and that head legitimate mo- and a lot of mechanicals won't do this some will say they do but I've only found three that will that head will hit. At 100 yards in my field point group without a doubt the other two heads that will do that is the schwacker that i i bought some of those levi morgan edition schwackers um i don't like the aluminum fruel i do like the 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 blades are pretty thick um i might try those but i shot those the other day in, a, in practice mode you can put a little set screw in there 100 yards right in the group the g5 dead meats those also will shoot right there 100 yards right with your field points but those those have a little bit of a what i noticed they have just a little bit of a hiss or like a little whistle to them in flight Hmm. um so the tripans don't um their blades are exposed you know a little more than those other ones they start to fall off for me at right around 70 yards so um you know if i shoot a group at 70 my field points will be right there and then this you know that that head will be couple inches lower and as i go back it's lower lower still so i mean if you know that and you're not gonna shoot past 70 yards or 65 then no no big deal you know what i mean so that between that sever 1.5 and that that rage tripan man i've just been really happy with those two um and i'm sure there's some other good ones on the market i obviously haven't tried them all but those seem to be i mean i have so many of those heads left over that uh after shooting them through animals, and I just I just buy new blades, put them on, pop them on, and go hunting again. I mean, there there's never any wobble in them. They're super strong. I think the I'm not positive, but I think aren't they both titanium or are they both stainless steel? I, I can't remember, the, but I,
1: I don't know. I think the rages might be steel, but the severs the 1.5 and the 2.1 are titanium ferrule. Although the 2.1 is a significantly longer ferrule because of the design. Okay. Um, and if they wanted to make that those blades more swept back, I think they'd need to make the ferrule even longer, which I think is one of the compromises of that design. But with the 1.5, mm-hmm. it's it's all right, and that that sucker is durable. I wouldn't have you know like one of the fears that I would have potentially about a mechanical is just like what happens if you if you do go through the scapula or something and the ferrule just like folds. Well, then you're it's game over. It Doesn't matter like what you're shooting out of your bow mm-hmm. arrow weight. Any, none of that matters anymore. But those those ferrules are. Are pretty tough, um, and I think I told you I, I shot one through a, a coyote, and if, you know after I pulled it out of the dirt, I took the blades out, I re you know honed those on a, a wheel with some white rouge, and they were shaving hair on my arm again. Just reassembled the blades back on the head, and that thing's ready to shoot again. So like yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat as you with, with how accurate they are. They're quiet, you know. If I do have Very a mechanical in my quiver, those the 1.5s are are pretty close to the top of my list. Um, Another one that's, that's interesting is the, the afflictors because they have, when I looked at a lot of mechanicals and it kind of, I took pictures of everything deployed and put them all to scale side by side on like paper and measured the mechanical advantage of all the cutting surfaces and mm-hmm. the afflictors were probably the best overall, but they do have longer ferrules and I think they use like 303 stainless, which isn't as strong. Um, I don't think as the grade five titanium that like this ever uses. Mm. Okay.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, those heads are legit, man. I mean, they they really are. They are a great head. And just the fact that you can put that set screw on and shoot it at whatever your max range is and it just hits right with your field points, that is such a, a good feeling, even though you even though you might never take that shot. Um, but, like, the, those ranges, you know, if, if, you, if you pull it off, I'm not trying to, you know, steer people towards those at all. Like, uh, I mean, I would rather see people probably shoot a good fixed head to be honest with you on most people but you know if you are a mechanical guy you know i can vouch for those two heads those have i've killed a lot of a lot of critters with both those heads and man i've never i haven't yet to have a bad experience now i know i could hit a a shoulder on something with one of those heads and i probably wouldn't favor as well um but you know i don't know i kill a lot of deer with ram cats too and uh Man, those are those are a wicked head, and I I blew through some shoulders with those like with ease. So th- those are another, you know, another good head that I feel confident in. But they, they again, when I started looking at a lot of different factors, like those had a little bit of hiss to them. They got that cupping in the front and just kind of catches some air, and it's really good for accuracy and like aerodynamics. But it, it does create a little bit of a noise there. Um, but those shot really good, like out to. 60 70 yards right with my field points somewhere around there they started kind of dropping off but but yeah that's kind of where I'm at right now I have uh I have the day 6 fixed heads the 125s I have a few um I have the magnus black hornets which I really like those those fly really good so yeah I'll likely have a couple of those in my quiver um and I like to always like when I'm shooting and I'm and I'm picking uh Fletching configurations I'm, I always throw a fixed head on there you know even if I'm going to run a mechanical like I want it to steer and I want it to be forgiving so and I want to be able to to go back and forth with if uh, mm-hmm. the situation calls for it and if I, if I can't get a head that can do that I probably won't stick with it but I tend to tend to kind of favor those sm- kind of smaller more compact you know fixed heads I guess that that uh, day six one is I wouldn't call that exactly small but so far 40 yards and in out of the, you know, on those day six arrows, I got a dozen of those, man. They're just hammering right there with my field points.
1: Yeah. Well, I think they're like one and a 16th on main blade. So is rel- that it? Okay. yeah, relatively speak they have a bigger one too. That's one and a quarter, but I mean, relatively speaking compared to some of the other heads that are out there, like I think even your Magnus is probably one and a quarter, but of course vented. Uh, one thing with those day six heads too, I, the steel on that, because I have some of their XLs, the 200 grain that are, you know, built as their traditional heads. Out of the package, they would they would shave some hairs. I could you know take strokes against my arm, and you you definitely see some hairs pop up. But I took that head right out of the package and I put it on that that uh, sharpening wheel with just that. It's like a paper wheel with a just like a white compound, mm-hmm. and it's more it's more polishing than anything else. And a few passes on that, and I could take that head and just lay it flat on my arm and just push and just leave a clean, uh, just a clean shaven arm right behind with just one smooth swipe. Uh, wow that it's just is unreal
2: yeah that's cool i might have to look into one of those like i use a um i use that uh leather strop i can get blades pretty sharp you know that like i said that or like you said they'll cut some hairs but maybe not perfectly clean like that they'll slice paper you know or like a like a taut rubber band or something like that you know pretty easily but those uh those magnuses those are those are really sharp
1: out of the package i'm impressed by those yeah. For their price point, they seem to be a pretty great head. And I think they have a warranty on them too.
2: They do. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a good solid head.
1: I know a lot of guys that swear by those. So yeah, we'll see, but that's kind of where I'm
2: at with, with, uh, broadheads.
1: A couple of things I was going to ask you too, about your bow setup and some of your accessories for your accessories on the string. Do you have like a preferred D loop material? Or are you just running a a peep sight all by itself do you have like a nose button what all do you have to help with your anchoring
2: um i think i just use that bcy is it uh it's just regular D-loop material i think it's like 20 number 24 or something like that okay um i think that's all i use i think that's pretty common nothing real special there i don't have a nose button i have a few friends that have tried that bomar nose button they really like it um I just have always just kind of touched my nose to the string there. And I, I, I don't know, I guess I've never felt a need for that. But I'm, I'm interested in maybe trying it. I might just even try just tying a little piece of serving right there to, you know, to mm-hmm. start, see if I think it makes a difference. For my peep, man, this is this is something that has made a difference. Um, I use uh, a peep called, the it's called Total Peep. Um, and I believe a similar one is called the Raptor Peep. It's a kind of like a barrel-shaped peep, kind of like a almost like a cylindrical barrel. So it looks a little big and bulky on the string. Um, they're not that much heavier than my normal peep, um, but what it does is it has a really like kind of like a matte, like grainy type finish to it. So it doesn't it doesn't have any light reflection. So I don't know if a lot of people probably know this, but it, like, depending on where the lighting has come from and in a room or where the sun is. It can impact your, your left and rights because it's kind of shining wow. on the housing. It's making one side bright, one side dark. So when you go to center, you know, everything, it's, it's slightly different depending on where that light is. Well, this peep eliminates that. There's no glare whatsoever. So you just see a perfectly eclipsing hole or circle that you can put around your housing. And I think it's a foreign company but the, I think a, a similar one to that that sold here is, um, it's called the Raptor Peep by Hamsky, but man, I put that on my traverse and uh, it, it just made a big difference. Like I, I'm not, my left and right misses are, are much less frequent and it's just, there's just no glare there. And it's just like, it what you see is what you get. It's like a perfect circle and you put that around your housing and it's just like my, on my other bow, I currently have a, it's a radical peep. It's the one of the lighter peeps that they make that I really like because it doesn't add a lot of weight to the string, but you know, it's just like all those other peeps. It's kind of got a, it, it might be a little like a matte type finish, but it, st- it still has a little shine to it. You know, when the sun or a light hits it and um, you can really see like going back and forth between those two, you can really see how that radical peep has like a, a glare or a shine on one side of it on the inside you know, when you're shooting, like when the sun's over here, or when you're indoors, you know, maybe shooting at spots or something. That would be something for some people to sh- to, to test out if they're looking, you know, for little things that can improve your accuracy. That, that would be something that, at least for me, made a big difference.
1: Yeah, I also have that same peep sight. And one thing I don't think you touched on is since it tapers from each side toward the center, if your string is ends up being twisted an eighth or you know even close to like a quarter of a turn and you come back to full draw you're still getting a perfectly round circle and it's still yeah, that's it's right. still centered on that axis of the string whereas if you right. have a normal peep you know you're getting now all of a sudden you got an oval that you're trying to line up with your side housing
2: exactly yeah you're exactly right yeah that is that's one of the main advantages of it that i forgot to mention but yeah i've been really really uh happy with that in fact i bought uh when we i was at the eta show they had a booth there. I picked up another one for, uh, for my other bow. So I'll be installing that here soon.
1: Yeah. What what size do you have for your aperture?
2: Um. I have one. Or no. Uh. Is it three sixteenths?
1: Could be. Uh, I'm running a seven sixteenths, which is, no, no, not seven I'm I'm doing, seven thirty seconds maybe. It's right. It's the one right underneath a quarter inch. It's almost a quarter inch. which is one down from that. But it's it's big. Like it's compared to another peep site that's the similar you know aperture it's yeah. huge but it's also like you said it's not so, uh, so much heavier because it's not like aluminum it's like that composite material
2: exactly yeah i've used i think it's three sixteenths and i've also used one eight sometimes it depends on like what how big my site housing is but um i don't go with too small but i don't go too
1: big either it's like kind of middle of the road yeah how far out do you run your uh your site and what kind of or what size housing do you like to run so
2: right now I have, uh, both of them, I have HHA, and I do not have the dovetail. I like to run my sight closer to the riser, and I don't have it, like, like real close. I, I just like to have it a little bit closer to the riser. I don't really like it sticking out there. Um, and it's an inch and five-eighths housing, and that seems to marry up with my, uh, the, the peep size I have just, just perfectly. So I, I really haven't messed with that. I used to run a two-inch housing. Which was fine you know you could see a little more a little more light and everything you know in there and that was fine but i kind of went and got all my setups the same so i had the same exact sight going back and forth um, between the two bows just to kind of i don't know, eliminate any differences i guess and that's a
1: single pin slider
2: it is yeah right now i have i have the king pin uh, two king pins um i also have i have a uh black gold ascent four pin I've went to the the single pin, I don't know, six or seven years ago. It's kind of right when I was going through, like kind of coming out of that target panic thing, you know, just that clear sight picture and just having that one spot of focus to, to worry about, I think just, just decluttering my whole sight picture, um, just really helped that way with just one horizontal up pin. The downside obviously is that, you know, sometimes, in the heat of the moment you know you might have to adjust i've come close to having that you know muck things up a few times but um it hasn't um there's been times where you know there was a deer out at 35 and i came to full draw and then he came in to 20 and you know i just kind of adjusted my hold and was able to to make the shot you know so i do i practice those situations a little bit so i have a you know an idea of kind of where i need to hold you know within reason but I, I really like being able to just dial into that yardage. And if, if I do have a, a, an animal that's out a little further, I'm going to take my time anyway. So my whole process from dialing it and everything, I'm just going to take my time. And, you know, it's it, those shots require a little more concentration, calming your nerves a little more, a little bit of form. I'm going to take my time to make sure that's all good before I let an arrow go. So. I've kind of just stuck with that single pin. It's just what I'm comfortable with. Now, with all that being said, elk hunting last year would have been a major advantage to have the multi-pin. I, and I don't even know that I would need the slider. Um, I like having a slider, but where we were hunting, you we probably wouldn't need it. So I'm probably going to throw that that black gold four-pin on for my elk hunt just because those those bulls, when they're coming in, man, it's like... You, you don't know where they're going to stop, you know (laughs) I mean? It's like, they're they're coming, and you don't want to be fumbling around, really, with your thing. So just to have a 20, 30, 40, and 50, you know, just right there, ready to go, I know it's going to be somewhere, you know, somewhere in that range, and then I can just hold accordingly, so.
1: Right. Well, and not to mention, too, if you're on any one of those pins, you're not adjusting your anchor at all.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's another another uh, potential I guess downside to a single pin slider is that you, you know when you when you go from 20 on the dial down to a hundred you know you, you're moving that sight you know way down so it, it does you have to it, kind of change your head position a little bit and to get everything kind of lined up so there's some changing there if you practice it all the time it becomes like second nature it's not difficult but if it's something new to you and you try to make that transition you might be like wait a second you know my, my sight housing isn't even in my peep anymore, you know, when you when you dial it down to those longer ranges. But you can get used to it. You know, I set my pin. I set my peep height for right around 40 yards. Um, so like when my head's perfectly kind of upright, just natural, you know, I'm looking through my peep. Everything is lined up perfectly right about at 40 yards. And what that does is if I have to dial it down to 20, I just I, I literally just have to tip my head position ever so slightly forward to get it to line up. And then when I'm at longer distances, say like, you know, 80, you know, or, or longer, it's like, I just have to tip it up slightly. And you know, it, it sounds more than what it is. It's just, it's literally just lining up your peep and your sight housing, but you do have to change a little bit to do that. on a moving slider.
1: You know, I, I tried both. I, I used a single pin slider for a few years. I did love how clear that sight picture was. Uh, but I think for me, it was more the filming aspect. It was like, that That was like the one step too much. It was like, I couldn't do it, you know, like adjusting yeah. the camera and then the ranging and then the adjusting the sight. Like I just needed to have that one less step. Um, but I can, I can definitely see how there's a place for that single pin slider for, you know, for a lot of people. I've been using that easy V lately, but if I was going to do like a attack event or if I knew I was going to go out West and, and was going to have opportunity for a longer uh, shot, then I'd probably I'd probably go with you know something similar to that black gold, um, you know multi like either a three or a five pin slider seems like it would probably be a pretty good option. Yeah,
2: I think I think overall, like if you put put all the factors together, that that's the superior sight, you know, as far as like you know having the option of of using those fixed pins and not having to to move anything, but you have the ability to certainly some shortfalls with a single pin slider, but again. Every person's different. You kind of got to weigh what you value more. And for me right now, um, under a lot of uh, circumstances, I value that clean sight picture where the next guy might, you know, that might not be as big of a deal to him. I don't, I don't like seeing a lot of cluttered horizontal pins when I'm trying to aim. I, I almost like look through the pin at the spot I'm trying to hit, and the pin just kind of floats there. So when there's all this other stuff, it just it just interferes with my program a little bit. I can still shoot accurately with them. I've never ran into trouble, but it just it just bugs me. But um, in that elk hunting scenario, I could not deny that that is a huge advantage. You know, because those those things are moving. You know, constantly, and uh, you can't keep fiddling with your dial to get it all in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, you'd probably be fine just setting it at twenty five and and just shooting. You know, because you, most you you know, like, let's say, you know, 35 and in or something is most likely your shot going to be somewhere in there. Um, so you probably could just set it at 25 and just adjust accordingly. But that's one thing that I've never been really solid at is, uh, I'm so used to like that pin is where I need to, you know, is, is where I need to put that pin exactly where I want to hit. So when something's moving through and the adrenaline's going, that's just another thing that I could screw up is like, okay. You know, he's at, you know, my pin's at 25, but he's at 35 and, you know, I got to hold a little, you know, hold a little high or
1: whatever. Yeah. I've seen some guys too with elk doing like that trick pin system where they'll just use like a pin that, you know, they'll, they'll do the math or whatever and and run through the setup, but it usually ends up, I think being like a 40 or 50 yard pin and they'll basically aim like right at the belly line of that elk from everything Hmm. from like, you know, 20 through like whatever, like basically if he's out to that, that pin distance or pretty close to it. And, um, it's like trying to maximize like the amount of time that your arrow spends close to the height of its trajectory. It ends up, there's a lot of distances where if you're aiming, um, you know, down at the belly line, your arrow will end up like between like nine and 12 inches above it for a whole bunch of, you know, range throughout that shot process. So if you don't exactly know like the range, like there's a good chance if you just shoot, holding at that spot like you're you're gonna end up like within a three inch vertical window, more or less like in the vitals. Interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. You mentioned pin float, um and I think that's a huge thing. I'm just trying to like bring that in from like the calmness and clarity that you have when you're executing your shot as well as just like overall accuracy. For me, I I know that draw length down to the eighth of an inch for me makes a big difference in how steady I can hold. Uh, but even yes. be, even beyond that, and, and I know that you have, like, experimented even, like, with your bows, like, trying to figure out, like, which one shoots the best and which one holds the best. Has there been any particular aspects of a bow that you find work best for you, whether it's a longer or a shorter axle-to-axle, longer or shorter brace height, more deflexed or reflexed riser, anything that, like, really works for you?
2: Well, I mean, yeah.
1: I mean, my most accurate bows...
2: Have been now. I've never shot anything really long axle to axle. My longest one was a thirty-five uh, elite. Shot that really well, but if I go back through and think of like my most accurate bows, they were all above thirty-two inches and all above six-inch brace height. So like my my most accurate bow, the one I have right now, and my favorite bow to date, or at least the the one that I just shoot the best and most confident in is a Matthews Traverse. Um, So it's 33 inches axle to axle. I think it's got like a six and five eighths brace height. And then I had a couple that were like kind of in that 32 range, but they had seven inch brace heights and I shot those really well too. You know, it's so hard to say, like I had a tri X, a 28 inch, you know, and I'm almost the 30th draw and and I shot that good, but I would just get the, uh, I would get the occasional, just wild flyer and i don't get that with my traverse i haven't got that with a couple of the other bows that i've really got along with so like this bow is just the way i have it set up now with you know with stabilizers and and just the the holding weight and the axle to axle and the, the just the overall balance and the grip like everything just i get along with it really well and, and bows are so personal you know i got this guy over here that's shooting a hoyt and he's just you know, so accurate with it. He feels the same way about that. But when I shoot a hoy, at least the last few years, like, man, I cannot I cannot shoot those things very well. And it's probably just because it's such a dramatic difference than what I have, if I just committed and went over to that, my body would get used to it. And you know, I would I would probably, you know, shoot those accurately. But I want the bow to shoot easy. I want something that I get along with like right out of the box. So if it's something that I have to fight with to kind of get to that accuracy. I lose the confidence in it like really quickly right off the bat I used to do like a lot of buying and selling used bows it was kind of like a hobby to me so I would like try to buy you know cheap and I would keep it for a few months and I'd go through the tuning and that's where I kind of learned a lot of like my own tuning and whatnot and I would test it and I would shoot it and I would try different setups and then I would sell it and I'd give someone else a good deal and you know yeah I might be out 20 30 bucks or whatever but I, it was fun for me. I really enjoyed doing that. I learned a lot about different cam systems and, and whatnot. You know, who knows what I'll be shooting down the road right now. This it's gonna be take a lot to, you know, pry this traverse out of my hands. But it just the the, the length of it and the brace height and the way I have it balanced, it just I just get along with it really well. I got a really, really nice calm pin float. Um, there's not much like action in the bow when it when, oh, when I when I shoot the shot. It's not like Jumping around or anything. It's just kind of sits there um, And I'm just really accurate with it really happy with my setup So um, I don't know if I would attribute that more towards the axle by axle or the brace height Or is it the grip, you know the new grip that I get along with so well, you know, who knows? It could be a combination of all of that um, It's really hard to pinpoint that but for whatever reason I tend to shoot those seven inch brace heights You know uh, or over six, you know six and a half to seven and those bows that are longer than 32 inches or so, the best. Now, I have a, a vertex also that kind of matches up pretty well with the Traverse. Same grip, same can system, but it is shorter. And that was, you know, that's kind of like my ground hunting bow. More maneuverable in a ground blind for turkeys. And even like out west for elk, I, t- I chose to take that bow. It's a little faster, a little more maneuverable. And I still shoot it really, really well, but if I put them head to head at 80 yards and 100 yards, that traverse will win. Um, it'll win every time. So it's, it's just one of those it's just one of those things that you know a lot of guys just kind of buy whatever and make it work, and you can do that. Um, and, and what I'm doing, probably what you're doing, you know, may seem like overkill. What your listeners got to understand is just like, I love this stuff. Like this is like entertainment for me and on top of that, it does give me that sense that I'm kind of always reaching to improve and, and get better. And in the archery part for me, cause I'm such a dedicated bow hunter, I, I do very little gun hunting. It's just really important to me to put a lot of effort and take the archery side really serious. And, and I've seen it and the more I put into it, the better I get as an archer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better and I'm, I'm finding things that work better for me. And, um, uh, I don't know. It just really helps like going into the hunting season, having that confidence.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Real quick. Uh, Cause you did talk about pin float and I didn't really talk about it too much, but um, yes, holding weight, draw length, all of that will impact it. So like my perfect draw length with my traverse is 29.75. So if I got, if I put it to 30, or a little over 30, if I put 30-inch mods on there and it's it's 30 and a quarter, it feels a little long. What well, that will translate into my pin flow is it's kind of, they're kind of big, long, lazy movements. And I tried this because, again, I mean, I test everything against everything. It's just, just what I do. And because I was, you know, technically, when you measure my draw length, like if you you do it like with your, you know, your hand to your chest and then your fist out, yep. I come in at like a 30. So I bought the thirty-inch mods, and and that's what I see. I see a a, a more kind of long, lazy, a little more movement, but like kind of slower, like figure eights, like up and down. And then when I go shorter on the shorter end, say like a twenty-nine point five, or twenty-nine and a quarter, I get more, uh, more like erratic movement. Yeah, you know, like it's like I'm I'm not expanded as as much. Um, So that twenty-nine point seven five is my sweet spot. And if it's not 29.75, I can tell in an instant that it's not right. You know, if I, if I tie my D loop too long or something and, and something's a little out of whack or a string stretch, I start to feel it. I can really feel it. Like i am that tuned in. So, um, that, uh, goes into, you know, pin flow, but, but also like stabilization, you know, I run a back bar, the, the Matthews bows tend to be a little top heavy. So they, for me personally, they balance better with some offset weight so you know I put a little weight out front and I put a little weight on the back bar and I adjust that to not only uh, bring me to level um, without any effort but also to minimize pin flow and again I did the same thing I would um, you know to get it to level I obviously I draw back with my eyes closed and I open my eyes and I will adjust that that back bar in and out until that bubble is perfectly level without me having to touch it at all all I need to worry about is drawing my bow back and having, you know, a consistent grip and that bow will be level. But then as far as like actual pin flow and, and adjusting for that, you know, you can tinker with the front and back weight to kind of, to minimize that because a relaxed pin float gives you a relaxed, a more relaxed shot execution. If your pin is moving around and you're fighting that pin, your shot execution isn't isn't real smooth and it's not as relaxed as it could be, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're fighting to keep that pin up, if it keeps dropping and bottoming out, bottoming out, it's really hard to keep that consistent pull, 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 seeing that it drops out of the bullseye every time, you know? So, so what I do, if I, if I have a pin that's doing that, um, you know, I'll I'll add some weight to my back bar so that it wants to kind of tilt that bow and keep that pin up. And I'll do that till it just wants to sit up. I'm not fighting it anymore. I don't want to fight the pin. So that, you know, you see guys running that back bar. Yeah. It looks a little cumbersome in the, in the woods, but may not be necessary if you're you know a 30 yard and in guy and that's fine. Uh, I, I I know straight up killers with walls full of big bucks that do not even tune their bows that do not run stabilizers. And they just literally go out and grip it and rip it and, they kill things. Um, but that's just not how my brain works. And, and I you can tell it's not how your brain works. So, you know, I try to minimize that pin float so that it just just kinda wants to sit there. It's still moving, but it's just kind of slowly just kind of sitting there, just kind of moving around, but it doesn't really ever leave where I want it to hit. Um, so I'll adjust with like front weight and back weight to get to do that. You know, if you're getting a lot of side to side, you can, you can minimize that by adding front weight. And like I said, if you, if your pin keeps dropping out, you can, you can take some weight off the front. If you have four or five ounces out front, you could take some weight off the front or add it to the back. So right now for my hunting setup, all's I run is I have uh, three ounces out front and six ounces on my back bar. And that's it. And I don't want to go any heavier than that. I could probably get an even better hold with a longer stabilizer with, you know, maybe that same amount of weight or, or adding more weight, but, but it's a balance for me of this still is my hunting setup. I still need to be able to it or grab it and uh, run up a mountain or, you know, it still needs to be maneuverable. So that's kind of like my, uh, that's just kind of the, the zone that I've kind of fell into where I feel like it's a hunting rig, but has, has some target capabilities and qualities. And that's just kind of the balance that I like. Um, but it, it you know, the next guy might not like that at all. So yeah. it's, it's, just all personal.
1: You mentioned holding weight a little bit too. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm literally like right in the middle of this, you know, this whole thing right now trying to figure out what I like the best. Cause I can't remember if I, if I told you or not, but I picked up a Gearhead after ATA and mm-hmm. you have three different, string post options on the cam there's an A, a B, and a c and the b is the one they ship it with and if you put the string on the c post it long strings it so you end up getting way more of a hump a higher uh peak weight but then it really dumps off in the back end uh to where i might be hitting like 78 pounds peak weight and you look at the bow scale it drops down to like eight pounds uh once Mm. you're on the you know the depth of the valley and then you put it on a and it's the opposite right it's like a real smooth draw cycle but then you have more holding weight curious what you if you play around with that at all um in terms of like where your draw stop is and, and how much holding weight you like uh, what you want that valley to feel like uh, in order to yeah. help, help with your stability well okay
2: so i i don't tweak my holding weight really but this is what i found out about holding weight and let off and what what i like best or what i shoot best i used to have um an elite and i had an obsession bow um that had, you know, a really big valley, really high let off, um, limb stops. And when I first shot those, man, I was like, man, this is, this is it. You know, I can hold this at full draw for two minutes if I need to, no problem. Great for hunting. Um, and it is, it really is. I mean, that's a huge advantage. Just that alone could steer someone enough to go to a bowl like that. That's super high let off, but that really high uh, let off and low holding weight. Even though I shot those bows pretty good, I felt like I was more consistent, just arrow to arrow, when I had a little bit more, somewhere in that like eighty to eighty-five, you know, somewhere in there. It's still high, um, but I like to have a little bit of a little bit of holding weight there. So then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, these uh, so these new Matthews they have. the the switch weight mods so what i found was like the on that verdicts i had some 70s um and then i have i ordered the 75s and then i have some 65s right now i have the 70s on there and what that does is they allow you to change the poundage a little bit but each of them has a little bit different feel so the 70 pound mods it shortens up the Valley quite a bit. So like, I have to be real aggressive, like holding into that back wall. And if I, if I relax at all with those 70 pound mods at my draw length, it, it goes, and you know, I mean, it goes forward. But if I go to the 65 pound mods, still at my draw length, it, it feels way different. It feels like there's a little more Valley there. I can relax into it a little more. So when there's more holding weight where I have to be really aggressive in there, um, I actually shoot those um, I shoot those really well but I don't really like them for a hunting setup just because you you could find yourself at full draw for a long time you know if a, an animal turns and faces you right when you come to full draw even though I shoot those like if I was a competitive shooter I probably would shoot something more you know in that 80 to 70 70 percent let off um, so I, I again I shoot kind of somewhere in the middle that happy medium of like 80 to 85. Um, And I can't tell you exactly what my holding weight is. All I can tell you is what I shoot now is somewhere in between those two discrepancies. And it feels really good. The valley that I have with my current setup feels really good. And it's, it kind of gives me that blend of enough holding weight where I have to, I have to stay active into that back wall and I can't relax. What happens when you have like a 90% let off, like a really deep valley, you can relax. Like you can, let up on your, your back muscles in your shoulder, your rear deltoids quite a bit, and you're still at full draw. So like when you, you know, you have that, that range that you can be kind of holding, you know, or really aggressively holding, but the bow stays at full draw. That's a lot of, a lot of area that you can vary in there that, you know, can impact your accuracy. So I like something that does require you to be active into that back wall. And if you if you start to let go, it it does want to go forward, but I don't want it so aggressive where I'm fighting it, you know, in a hunting scenario where I have to hold back for 45 seconds. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think too, something, one thing I've noticed is when I have it on that, that cam setting where I do have the big, huge valley and it's like 90% let off and it almost feels like you got to, almost feels like you got to push forward to get back off that wall. And then it goes, Mm -hmm. if I do that and I also couple that with a, You know, release activation that's like I just sit static on the back wall and like rotate it like a hinge and try to get it to go off when it's nice and relaxed like that Mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of variation on the back wall and there's probably also a lot of variation in exactly how my alignment is and I think that translates into some left and right misses whereas if I just you know uh, even if I have that bigger valley if I'm actively pulling against that back wall to activate that release it's probably the more consistent way to do it um, regardless of the of the draw, um, setting that I'm using. Yeah. I know on that higher let off too, like that's, that that string is just,
2: there's so much less like tension there. There's just so much, uh, when you release, you know, there's that, that kind of slow take off, you know, because you're way, yeah, you're kind of way back in that Valley. So it just, just gives you that split second to make a form error or, you know, contact on your face or something like that, that, you know, How big of a difference do those make, you know, I don't know, but I I feel like they they make some there There's a reason why the top archers in the world don't shoot 90% Um, Right, you know, there's a reason there. So from a hunting standpoint, you know, high let off In a a valley is is a nice thing to have. So for me personally, I just choose somewhere in the middle That's kind of a blend of the two. I don't really want to fall too far on the spectrum one way or the other No, that makes a lot of sense the knock fit thing is, is big. So I can't tell you exactly. Um, right right now, like I've been shooting, the the stock strings on my Matthews. I've been really happy with them. Like after I shoot them in about 50 shots, I haven't had any issue. I think they've come a long way than like the old zebra strings. Um, so I have the, you know, the serving that's on there. Sometimes I'll have that done if I start getting some separation or something. So like some of the arrows that come with their stock knocks, Uh, you know, they're just way too tight for, you know, the serving. So instead of using those knocks, I've, what I've found is I've just, I've found these knocks that I really like and they're, they're biter, uh, hunter knocks. I just get them through Lancaster. Um, and I have some for my black Eagle rampages and I bought some that will fit into those, uh, those day six arrows. They're a little tight on the day six arrows. I had to put some Vaseline on them to to get them in there, but, uh, they work those are the knocks I like. And and what I like about them is because I do transition into a lighted knock, um, you know, come hunting season. Um, I didn't for my out West hunts. Uh, it it just, I kind of, I transition into from summer and then a lot of my out West hunts are like, you know, August, September. So I'm just usually so confident in that setup. And usually my shots are all like in the daylight, like broad daylight, you know, I'm not getting those like those dusky type shots where a lighted knock really helps a lot. Yeah. Um, so I've I've just kind of ran those knocks. But what I do like about them is the knock fit is very very similar to the nocturnal knocks that I that I use. So uh-huh. I like to I like to have a knock that just kind of just clips on. It's not a big loud snap. It's just a little, dunk, you know. And then it, it comes off easy too, you know. Like you're you don't have to like if you pull pull on your shaft and your knock stays on the string, that's too tight in my opinion. So I like the ones that just pop right off without, uh, you know, as minimal resistance as possible, but I don't want them falling off obviously. Um, so that that's the kind of knock fit that I, I I look for. And it seems like these biter knocks are really, really consistent. Um, I haven't had any like bend or break or anything. Um, and I really like the way they fit and snap onto the string. And then when I do switch over to those nocturnals, Yes, I have to retune everything and make sure I'm still shooting those bullet holes because it is a different knock. It weighs a little more, but it's usually a really like seamless transition. They like they snap on uh, just about the same. I don't even I don't even really need to tie in. I like a I like a knock set tied in above and below. I don't even have to tie in those. So they're they're similar enough where they're, you know, I can transition and I don't have to like change anything. Those knocks that came with the day six arrows, they were really, really tight on my serving. And I'm sure they're great knocks, but I didn't want to like reserve everything, you know, and to, so that those would fit. And now my nocturnals are too light. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. I didn't want to do anything like that. So those two is just kind of what I go back and forth. But like, like I said, my out west hunts, I've been kind of sticking with just that biter knock. And they seem to be really high quality. A lot, you know, a lot of guys speak highly of them you know, guys that are more knowledgeable than me. So that's kind of what steered me in that direction.
1: Right. Yeah. The, um, most knocks on, um, it seems like the strings and the bows that I've had tend to fit pretty decent, you know, to where you can mm-hmm. snap it on you can rotate the knock around the string and it stays on, but it doesn't like twist your, you know, peep and everything as you twist the knock. Yeah. Um, and then yep. you can, you can draw it back and the knock, like draw back just the knock without an arrow. And like, it doesn't, you know, twist one way or another. Um, yes, but, I've been using the fire knocks um, the last couple of years, uh, and I like them because they're really short. They have a short mm-hmm. throat, even though like on the 166 sizes. Uh, and for the lighted knock portion, you know, the, and if I run like a fob or something where I glue it on the shaft and I want to slide over the lighted knock and keep that lighted knock in the arrow, it works well for that. The throat fit on those fire knocks is just tiny compared to um, like where if I use a stock string and I snap the knock on the string. It's like the knock won't even close back all the way. Like it's it's like it's pried open. It's it's like sitting on the string. Uh hmm. so I had to reserve all my strings with like a like a fourteen thousandth power grip to get that serving diameter down to like one oh six. And that seems to work hmm. pretty well with those knocks. And I, I'm pretty happy with the result now. But yeah, stock they were super tight. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely uh I, I just ordered some custom strings.
2: I used to I used to get all of my strings from uh John's custom strings it's a guy off archery talk breathing uh i think his handle was but they're very good strings but i've been really happy with the Matthew strings i just haven't had any issues with them so but uh i have a, a buddy that um his dad makes some strings and they're supposed to be they're really popular i guess in that little area of missouri there so he he made me a set and sent them so i'll i'll probably try those um and see, that's with that new mercury material. So I've kind of been interested in trying that out. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. But, yeah, as far as knock fit, that's I do I do the same thing, man. I just want easy on, easy off, just a real not too loose, not too tight. That seems to give me the best accuracy. I've tried shooting some groups with ones that are, are too tight, and I've had tuning issues, like even through paper. So, um, you know, I just kind of, if it's too tight, I, I just won't use them.
1: Oh, yeah, one thing I was going to ask you, too, when you mentioned tuning, do you stop at like a bear shaft tune, or do you do a fletch tune? Do you do like a like a, a line tune? Uh, what do you where do you stop?
2: Yeah, I'll, so I'll do my I'll do my bear shaft at paper. Then I'll then I'll fletch them all up, you know, according to my reference marks. And then yes, I'll always shoot a bear or a fletch shaft back through paper just to be sure I'm not getting any contact. Then I usually go outside and uh, I will just for for giggles, I already know what it's going to do, but I'll shoot a a, a bear and a a fletched at like 20 yards and they'll, they'll hit right together. And then what I'll do is I'll just adjust my sight accordingly. And then, yes, I'll do like the line, the horizontal and vertical lines just to kind of get everything dialed in. Um, You know, this is after, obviously after my bow is like leveled, second, third axis, all that stuff. Yeah. Once, once I get that, that bear shaft flying true, there's just not a whole lot left that I need to do, you know. There, there's different things you can do to try to, uh, you know, maybe squeeze a little more out. Like you can do like like some torque tuning and stuff like that. I haven't dove really deep into that stuff yet, and I don't. <laughs> I probably will someday. I just um, so I've had the uh, the Q, the QAD integrate rest. It does not allow any forward or back movement, so you couldn't torque tune even if you wanted to. I've been really happy with those. Then I had one that um, had an issue, so I sent that in to get replaced. But in the meantime, I picked up one of those Hamski Hybrid Hunter Pro, which does give you a little, you know, room to, you know, move that rest forward and back. So I'm, I might experiment with that a little bit. You know, I don't know if I'll tackle that this year because there's just other things that I'm tackling, and I don't like to do too many things at once because then it just kind of skews everything. I like to kind of stick with one thing and get a result and then – yeah you know and then move on but um you know there's there's definitely some some things that you can do to kind of improve that like you know like i said before you know ad- adjusting the point weight and stuff but i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of beyond that you know i'm kind of where overall like you know i'm probably going to be in that kind of 100 125 grain and i just kind of shoot those against each other um but when i was really trying to find that as accurate as possible setup with those those black eagle rampages I was doing that with the with the point weights but right now and I've found at least with that rampage this is the most accurate setup I could squeeze out of it you know so far so I'm not gonna I probably won't adjust point weight or anything anymore because I've already kind of went through that you know that whole thing
1: yeah but I think we touched on a lot of the things that I you know had listed to that I wanted to talk to you about and you know I think this is a really good discussion. I think people are hopefully going to learn a lot. Maybe not necessarily like trying to copy, but like learn the process that goes into it. You know, the thought and uh, figuring out ways that they can improve their own setups uh, to become a little bit more accurate and more lethal. I'm still
2: learning, and like I said, I, I'm no expert, but I do geek out about this stuff, and um, I have gotten better. And I'm sure there's more room to grow, and there's there's definitely guys out there that know more than me and I've learned from them. If you're if you're listening, don't hesitate to to ask people that are more knowledgeable than you. Like a lot of those guys are just happy to help, which is pretty awesome to get advice, you know, from some of the the best shooters in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I always feel like every time I think I about got something figured out, there's like a whole, you know, whole deeper rabbit hole you can dive down and somebody's already done it. Yep, exactly. Well, cool, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. You answered a lot of questions that I had, and it was fun picking your brain on this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, I had fun, man. This was a, a little bit different podcast than I'm used to doing, so I've enjoyed it. I like
1: uh, I like being able to talk to uh, you know an archery nerd like me once in a while. <laughs> yeah. You have an Instagram, I know, but you you don't have like many other social media uh, channels that like people can go follow you. Would, would Instagram kind of be the The best place if people wanted to, you know, follow along with what you're doing. Yeah,
2: just bow hunting dad or bow hunting dad. No G in there. Yeah, Instagram, Facebook. I'm not I'm not very active on Facebook and I keep that like more kind of like family stuff. So um but yeah, that's pretty much it for now. But yeah, if you wanna give it a follow,
1: go for it. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.